Welcome to another episode of Colored Red, a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. I want to start off today by thanking everybody who responded to my Instagram and Facebook posts about nominating me for the Colorado Podcast Awards. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I think the nominating is over at midnight tonight, which would be Friday the 15th. If you want to follow the link on the Facebook page and in my Instagram bio and put in that nomination, that would be amazing. Just in case you're hearing this, I don't know, Friday evening. Or you can go on there and nominate five different Colorado podcasts in each of the categories if you want. But at any rate, thank you guys so much. In this historical murders episode, I'm going to be covering the Sand Creek Massacre. Today's information is out of three different books. Murder in the Mile High City by Linda Womack. Finding Sand Creek by Jerome A. Green and Douglas D. Scott. And The Tragedy of Sand Creek, Moki's War by Chris Ince and Howard Kazanjian. I also really want to note that there's still some level of debate about the actual motivations and political climates that led to this tragedy, that led to this massacre. A tragedy would sort of indicate that no one was at fault, but a massacre. Um, But of course, none of that discredits um, that this was an act of total depravity, led by one man in particular and backed by many more supporters, men and women alike. So here we go. This is also a story that has a number of very interesting side stories that come out of it and spiral away from it. The first one I'm going to tell is about a man named Silas Sewell. He was a guy who would find himself on the right side of history after he and others refused to participate and even tried to stop the Sand Creek Massacre from occurring. The other is that of a Cheyenne woman named Moki who survived the Sand Creek Massacre and went on to become a warrior in an effort to avenge the deaths of her family and people. And her story is maybe less of a heroic story, depending on how you look at it, but Her story is one that I found very intriguing as it's a piece of history that you don't often hear about. But first, the details of the Sand Creek Massacre and what happened. The Colorado Territory, not state, was granted by Congress on August 1st, 1861. At that time, a man named William Gilpin was selected by President Abraham Lincoln to be the governor. And immediately after creation of this territory, a small military force called the 1st Regiment of Colorado of Volunteers was created to try to defend it. The Civil War had officially begun only months prior in April, and the problems and pressure points leading up to the Civil War had of course been raging on for decades. The immigrants and pioneers settling in Colorado feared two things. They feared an attack from the Confederacy of the Southeast and an attack from the local indigenous tribes. Rumors were swirling around Denver City, as it was briefly called, which at that time was pretty much just a large collection of wooden shacks. And some local tribes found this situation really ideal to attack the city while everything was sort of in chaos and people were panicking about their protection level and what was going on in the United States at that time. A small fort was created called Camp Weld 
and it was just east of Denver City, and it housed the volunteer soldiers who would defend the city from attack from local tribes or the ever-looming attack from the Confederacy. Governor Gilpin sent several requests to the Secretary of War back east for reinforcements to deal with tribe hostility in particular, but the east was dealing with the Civil War that was ramping up and couldn't approve his requests. So Gilpin decided that he was going to take matters into his own hands with the creation of the Colorado Volunteers. One man who enlisted was Edward Winecoop, the former sheriff of Denver, and he was made a second lieutenant. Another man named John Milton Chivington, um, who had moved here from Ohio a year previously and was a Methodist preacher, was asked by Governor Gilpin to act as regimental chaplain. But Chivington wanted a fighting role, so the governor made him a colonel. And yeah, if you're wondering, a number of promotions and titles weren't really given based on merit or ability or skill, just more because men showed up and asked for them. So by the following year in February of 1862, rumors about Confederate attack were really on high. And these rumors weren't really baseless either. One Confederate brigadier named General H. Henry H. Sibley, um, he moved his troops towards Colorado for attack because he didn't really have any idea that this whole Colorado um, regiment had been created. And this group moving towards Colorado would be known as Sibley's Brigade. So as Sibley's Brigade marched northwest, the Colorado Volunteers also marched towards their direction. But it would turn out that they were incredibly strong and fit guys on the Colorado force. The 1st Regiment of Colorado Volunteers reached Fort Union on foot 400 miles from Denver in just 13 days. Like... You know those scenes in Lord of the Rings where Gimli, Legolas, and Aragorn are all jogging miles and miles and miles around Middle Earth just at the same speed? That was like the entire 1st Regiment of Colorado across the state of Colorado and into New Mexico in 13 days. They all just jogged there straight. So when they encountered Sibley's Brigade, a battle ensued which would become known as the Gettysburg of the West. In two days, they defeated these Confederate troops at Glorieta Pass. The Confederates who weren't killed were forced to retreat, and the Colorado Volunteers returned to Denver as heroes. Chivington, the preacher-turned-colonel, became especially popular, and it would be sort of noted later on that it's unclear exactly what role he played in leading the troops into this victory, because later on he would prove that he wasn't that good at this at all. Um, through 1863 and 1864, all these articles would run in the Rocky Mountain News under editor William Newton Byers that detailed the success and bravery of these volunteers of Colorado, who were now called the First Colorado Cavalry. So during those years following the Gettysburg of the West, the skirmishes and battles were fought kind of all over Colorado with various offshoots of fighting Indians. Um, they would have offshoots that would want to fight, and then certain parts of the tribe were peaceful. So to say that one particular tribe in particular was going against it is not true. So in May of 1864, Camp Weld received notice about a band of peaceful Southern Cheyennes led by Chief Black Kettle, who were camped nearby. Winecoop, who was now a major, wrote to Chivington and asked him what to do. And Chivington wrote back to reinforce the troops and prepare for an attack from Confederates, 
which was a total ruse just to get the troops reinforced. Winecoop rode out with the troops to meet Chief Black Kettle and make peace. During this time, the chief released four white children who were prisoners, and a peace council was eventually held at Camp Weld with Chief Black Kettle and Chief White Antelope, among other members of the tribes. But by this time, the new governor, John Evans, and Chivington had their own agenda already in mind. Chivington told the chiefs that there would be no peace unless they laid down their arms and that the time for treaties had passed. Buyers in the Rocky Mountain News took advantage of this situation to stir up controversy and his own agenda and fear. So in the Rocky Mountain News, he called for the immediate extinction of the Indians and invoked some of these problems that Colorado was having politically with trying to join the Union as a state and declared that the, quote, Indian problem was to blame for our inability to join the Union as a state at that time. Matters became even worse when separatists roving bands of young Cheyenne and Arapaho warriors raided areas of southern Colorado and western Kansas, and they murdered a family just south of Denver. This is, I'll note here, this is one of those points of contention as to whether or not the Indians actually did this, but it's kind of decided that they did. The scalped and mutilated bodies of the family were then brought into Denver and displayed to the public, and mass hysteria erupted. So Governor John Evans was pressed to act, and he called for additional militia, and back east they gave Evans permission to enlist citizens for another regiment that wouldn't exist for longer than 100 days. So the 3rd Regiment of Colorado Volunteers was made at this time and put under the command of Chivington, who again was the preacher from Ohio who just asked to be a commander earlier in this story. Governor Evans then issues a general proclamation, which was dispatched to Indian camps by messengers ordering all of the peaceful Indians to assemble at Fort Lyon, and all of those who didn't comply would be killed. Chiefs Black Kettle, White Antelope, Little Raven, and Left Hand immediately came to Fort Lyon seeking peace. They met with Winecoop, who was really disturbed by this proclamation, and he told the chiefs to bring their people along with the Arapaho tribes to the fort for peace negotiations, and he instructed the tribes to camp along Sand Creek, which was at that point 40 miles from the fort. When Governor Evans learned of the peacefully assembling Indian tribes at Sand Creek in Fort Lyon, he was enraged because now it would look like he was blowing this whole problem out of proportion because the Indians came, they wanted peace, this wasn't some all-out war, they were fighting the Civil War back east, and he's out here complaining about Indians who want peace. So he was fearing for his own reputation, and he decided that he had to act and just kill the Indians. So he relieved Winecoop of command and replaced him with Major Scott Anthony, and then Evans and Chivington and Anthony proceeded with their plan. So on the morning of November 28, 1864, Colonel Chivington and a dozen companies of soldiers with another four columns of cavalry soldiers and artillery wagons made their way to Fort Lyon and assembled there for battle. The following morning of November 29th at the break of dawn on this really cold, foggy day, 
Chivington divided his forces into a three-prong attack, and they charged into a still-sleeping Indian village by Sand Creek. Chief White Antelope heard shots and left his lodge with his arms extended in a sign of peace and was gunned down on the spot with a single round of fire. For six hours, troops led by Chivington murdered defenseless elderly women and children. The few capable men in the camp were not equipped with any useful weaponry, but managed to keep the troops at bay for hours as 500 Indians of the camp managed to escape across the plains, including Chief Black Kettle, who had to carry his bullet-riddled wife north towards the Smoky Hill River. And as it turns out, the entire battle was this huge bungle on the part of Chivington as his own troops were basically set up in this scenario to be caught in their own crossfire. And more of them killed each other than were killed by Indians attempting to defend their camp. Eyewitness accounts at the time estimate the number of innocent Indians died at around 200. Um, Most of them were women, children, and elderly. Chivington and the troops who remained that weren't gunned down by each other uh, returned to Denver for a hero's welcome. So it's at this time that I'll bring in the story of Captain Silas Sewell, otherwise known as Sy Sewell by his friends. Silas was a son in a long family of abolitionists and people who would go down on the right side of history. The family descended from George Sewell, who came to the New World on the actual Mayflower. His father was Amasa Sewell, an abolitionist who started the first Underground Railroad railroad in the Kansas Territory area. As a young boy, Silas became part of the Jayhawkers, which was an anti-slavery group who fought small battles against the pro-slavery forces in what was known as the Bleeding Kansas Years leading up to the Civil War. Eventually, Silas's brothers left for the Rocky Mountain region gold rush, and Silas went with them. He helped establish Central City, but he quickly grew really bored and restless with mining life. He was known around town for his wit and his bravery and his general level-headedness and his bright, fiery red hair. So it was no shock to anyone when he was one of the first men to join the 1st Regiment of Colorado Volunteers in 1861. He also made this really big effort to go around the town and recruit more men, which earned him a position as first lieutenant of Company K. It was during this time that Silas bonded with Edward Winecoop, and under Chivington, the two defeated the Confederate Sibley's Brigade. By 1864, Silas had been made a captain, and he took an active role in peace negotiations and was a part of the original meeting of chiefs at Fort Lyon, when they negotiated for peace. He also joined Winecoop in informing Chivington of the plans for peace later on, and it wasn't until November 28, 1864, Silas and his troops were on this reconnaissance mission along the Arkansas River, and they were passed by all those artillery wagons and cavalry and troops led by Chivington on their way to Fort Lyon. And Silas made this beeline for the fort to find out what was going on, and there he would write a letter to the dismissed wine coop, which said the following. As soon as I knew of their movement, I was indignant, as you would have been were you here. And I went to Cannon's room, where a number of officers of the 1st and 3rd were congregated, and I told them that any man who would take part in the murders, knowing the circumstances as we did, was a lowly, coward son of a bitch." 
Captain Y.J. Johnson and Lieutenant Harden went to camp and reported to Chivington, Downing, and the whole outfit what I had said, and you can bet hell was to pay in camp. And he also told the new Major Anthony that, in so many words, this was all bullshit and murder. Silas was ordered to march with the troops to Sand Creek, which he did, leading his company, but he held his company back and refused orders to send them into the massacre, ordering his own company to stay where they were. As soon as the massacre was over and Chiffington had returned to Denver to a hero's welcome, Silas Sewell and Edward Winecoop began a letter-writing campaign to expose the atrocities that had occurred. They sent detailed reports to United States Secretary of War, and an investigation by the Joint Committee on the Conduct of War was begun on January 10, 1865. Chivington had been disgraced in these proceedings, um, with days-long testimony about the peace negotiations and massacre from both, from both Winecoop and Sewell. So this guy, Chivington, was no longer a hero in many people's eyes. But there were still supporters of Chivington around, and he was enraged by all of this exposure of his bad decisions. Um, Chivington even gave a speech to his own supporters, where he offered them $500 um, for anyone who killed either an Indian or a person who sympathized with Indians. And of course, this was definitely called out for anyone who testified against Chivington. So on April 1st, 1865, Silas Sewell married Hersa Coberly, and on April 23rd, 1865, a mere three weeks later, Captain Silas Sewell, who was now part of the Denver Provost Guard, heard shots from his home on Curtis Street, and when he went to investigate, he walked along Lawrence Street and proceeded down F Street to Arapahoe Street, and there he was confronted by a man who shot him in the head, killing him instantly. He was 26 years old. There were a number of witnesses to this crime, and they said that the assassin fled and that they all saw that it was Private Charles W. Squires. Squires fled to New Mexico, where he proudly bragged to all of his friends and anyone with an earshot that he had killed Silas Sewell. But... Far more people supported Silas Sewell, and so this posse was formed who tracked Squires to New Mexico and brought him back. Meanwhile, buyers of the Rocky Mountain News, who was pretty much a Chivington supporter, refused to publish the name of the murderer, and everyone pretty much knew that he was the murderer, though. One of the largest funerals ever held in Denver happened at St. John's Church for Silas Sewell, and he was buried with full military honors in the city cemetery, formerly known as Mount Prospect Cemetery and currently known as Cheeseman Park. But Silas wasn't one of the bodies left in the park that still exists there to this day. He was moved to Riverside Cemetery where he is now. The man who caught Squires in New Mexico was named Lieutenant James Cannon, and he brought him back to Denver for trial. Then, mysteriously, only three days later, Lieutenant James Cannon was found dead in his room at the Tremont House Hotel, and Charles Squire escaped from jail, probably with the help of Jivington supporters, and was never brought to justice or found again. A marker detailing the life and death of Silas Sewell 
currently sits at 15th and Arapahoe, where he was presumably shot dead. So if you guys are rock- walking by there, take a look at that. And to really change gears here um, about this, I have a completely different story from one of the survivors of, San- of the Sand Creek Massacre, a woman named Moki, who was a witness to the absolute horror that day. Um, this story really isn't one that makes Moki into a hero or anything, because she also took part in many atrocities at her own hands. This is about pure anger and revenge and the stance that after being poisoned and massacred and raped and overtaken by white settlers, this is one woman's story of what she did to retaliate. During the massacre, Moki watched many of her family members, um, all of them in fact, and tribe, many members of the tribe, killed by Chivington's troops while they were defenseless. And she went on to join the Bowstring Society, which is an offshoot of the famous dog soldiers of the Cheyenne. She did this because after the massacre, she felt she had nothing really left other than revenge in her heart. And in the years following the massacre, peace treaties were given lip service all over the place, but atrocities and battles still continued to wage on. So the Bowstring Society were completely outraged by white settlers who wouldn't do what they were told to do. So the Bowstring Society decided to go in and set fire to freight towns like Julesburg, Colorado, in an attempt to stifle the spread of white settlers. Moki was truly one of the more infamous Indian female warriors, or famous, depending on how you want to look at it. She was one of only a handful of Indian women who went on to become warriors after the outrage of Sand Creek, as opposed to those who rallied for peace, who also existed in her tribe. She became so disillusioned by Sand Creek that she became fierce and ruthless, and she hated whites, and she didn't want peace, and she distrusted them. So four years after the Sand Creek Massacre, Black Kettle, the Cheyenne chief who had rallied for peace and escaped Sand Creek with some of his people, um, they were attacked in 1868 at the Battle of Washita River. They were attacked by Lieutenant George Custer because scouts of the Custers had seen a party of Indian raiders who attacked white settlers pass through this camp. Moki, her husband Medicine Water, and his daughter, who Moki had adopted as her own, were in this camp. And their daughter went missing during this battle and wasn't found, and Chief Black Kettle was killed during this battle. And when he was killed, most of his notions and ideas about peace went with him. At one point during Moki's revenge bloodlust, she and the Bowstring Society, um, they attacked a group of pioneers in Kansas, and they killed all of the adults in this group and took their daughters hostage. They starved and beat them and raped these daughters that they had captured. Moki and Medicine Water were later captured themselves and sent to a prison camp in Florida called Fort Marion. And what's interesting is that there's really no time in Moki's life where she repents and sees her own participation as along the same lines as what was going on before. She just continues this hatred of white people forever. And at the prison camp, they're even kept away from the other Cheyenne in the camp because they're considered really dangerous. Their time in this prison camp is very odd. Um, 
some of the details in this book, uh, Moki's War, detail what's going on at this prison camp. And white people from the towns would come in and actually watch like floor shows put on by prisoners and in this camp and they would buy Indian jewelry and tchotchkes sold by the prisoners. And this was like some form of entertainment for like the local people in the towns. And so eventually Moki and Medicine Water and the other prisoners were actually released. And Moki died from tuberculosis in 1881 at the age of 41. So the author of Moki's War, which everyone should really probably read because it tells a lot more of the story the author's name is Chris Ince, and she doesn't claim to defend Moki's actions, but she wants this part of history to be heard. And she wants this unique storyline started at the massacre of Sand Creek to be heard. And at the end of this book, there are stories that were orally passed down through families from the victims at Sand Creek to their families and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Here's one from Nellie Bear Tusk. Each evening, my grandmother would start telling us the story about Sand Creek. I was just a little girl then, and I didn't hardly catch all of it, but I'll tell you what I can remember. She used to say that when they got attacked, the men tried to protect them and told the women to take off, children and old men, and my grandfather was one of the protectors trying to protect them. And when my grandfather was still there waiting for all of them to get away, my grandfather was using a bow and arrow trying to keep the soldier's back, and he got wounded. I don't remember if it was his right arm or his left, and afterwards they took off. He started taking off to follow the people, and there was a little boy walking around there that got left, and he grabbed that little boy and he took off with them. And when they were running, they heard a whole bunch of horses coming up, and they thought that it was soldiers coming up to catch up with them. And here was a stallion leading a whole bunch of wild horses. And it stopped for those people, and those people went and grabbed whatever horses they wanted, and they got on. And after they got on the horses, the stallion took off again and led the horses and went like he went to hide them somewhere where they couldn't find them. And here's one last um, account that I'll read by Roger White Turtle. Everything at Sand Creek, horses, teepees, wagons, everything was destroyed, set on fire. My relatives there were Greasy Nose and Black Bear. Their descendants are the White Turtles. This one old man, he was standing on a hill. It was solid rock straight down. He was calling to the people in Cheyenne, saying, This way, this way, as people ran. There was an old lady, and she had a baby, and she was running to the man. But somebody shot her in the back of the head, and she dropped the baby, but a man came by and scooped the baby up. Don't know what became of that baby. So I'm going to have pictures of Moki and her husband, Medicine Water, and of Silas Sewell, and of that meeting at the fort where they tried to plan some of the peace negotiations, and of Governor Evans and of Chivington, and I'm going to put those all up on the Instagram for you all to see. And if you're not already on the Instagram following it, it's just pretty much updates about what's going on with the podcast and pictures associated with episodes. And I promise you guys, no memes. So meme-free zone over here. Same way with the um, with the Facebook group. And if you guys want to support the podcast in a monetary way, 
Just for $1 per month, you can go on patreon.com slash coloredredpodcast and donate $1 and get a sticker in the mail with a card from me. I've sent all the stickers and cards out to everyone who's on there so far. Thank you, everybody. So if you haven't received those, please message me and let me know and I'll get a replacement out for you guys. I've got some t-shirts that I'm trying to design right now and get in the works, so stay tuned for those. And yeah, that's about it, guys. Until next time, I've got a real creepy story for you guys at the end of this month. So until next time. <laughs>